0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this This is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 122 for december 13th 2007 Listener feedback number 30. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro security gateway on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. This is Security Now, the podcast where we teach you how to protect yourself, your security, and your privacy, as we learned last week. Steve Gibson is here from Irvine. Hi, Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be back with you. Good to talk to you again. We've got this is a question and answer session, so uh, we're going to do something fun this time, aren't
1: we? Well, yeah, we actually had we had some uh, some great questions that I just really liked a lot, and we'd sort of, we'd had a couple Questions pulling up the rear that were really fun. And the first one I ran across, I had to just call it the horrifying showstopper question of the week, and and which is our last one, number 12. And then someone had a great idea, which I thought, well, this is the great tip of the week. And someone else had a really fun anecdotal story about perfect paper passwords. So I thought, well, that's the perfect, P, the perfect PPP quandary of the week. Yeah, so those will be our, right. our final three will be that little lineup. I like that. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, we don't have
0: any addenda from our privacy discussion last week, except that I think we probably sent a chill down the spine of a, more than a few people, but it's good to be aware of. And that's the point. It's, it's not that necessarily there's anything you can do. And there certainly are some things you can do, but ultimately you may not have a lot of choice without dropping off the grid, but at least it's good to be aware of and t- make those choices where you can.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, any spin right news? Um, I did have one real short little fun anecdote from a lifelong Mac user. Uh-oh. Of course, you know, Spin oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Spinrite is, is always been PC only. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's tied to the PC because it still uses the BIOS, the, the basic I/O system BIOS that was part of the original IBM PC specification. And of course, the Mac, the Intel Macs have have they use something called EFI, which is it's 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 Serves the same purpose. That stands for Extensible Firmware Interface, but the two are not compatible. But but so there's anyway, no, there's no int13 call in EFI. Precisely, and believe me, SpinRite uses that like crazy. Could you? That's but there the must be of, some
0: comparable call.
1: Yes. I, well, I have to say there has to be, although I've I've never even gotten around to looking at it. And and, um,
0: and you better because I think. EFI is not something Apple made up. It's a Microsoft Intel specification. That's exactly so right. Eventually, PCs are going to be using it, too, I guess. There may be ultimately some migration. So Although, you know, this I'll is what get... keeps PCs from evolving is this installed base is all, <laughs> is all these people like you who have written to BIOS
1: and they can't change it. So maybe they right. never do change it. I don't know. So anyway, Philip Shriver, he describes himself, he says, as a lifelong Macintosh user and PC technician. I want to say thanks for Spinrite. When nothing in the Mac OS world can recover lost data, that's true. I depend upon any available PC and Spinrite yeah. Yeah. to
0: fix Mac drives. There's no analog to Spinrite in the Mac world. There yeah. are data recovery utilities. There are disk, you know, because uh, Spinrite doesn't work at the at the file system level. So there are file system recovery tools. Correct. Um, there are unerased tools, but it, as far as I know, there is no disk level tool like Spinrite on the Mac side.
1: Yep. He says, I started working it. I started I started using it at work in 1992. Wow. To re- <laughs> to, so what's that? Uh, 15, 16 years, 15 years ago, yeah. to recover data on oh, get this on full height, five megabyte drives <laughs> and also from floppies and Spinrite has been making me look like a hero ever since. No IT department or serious Mac technician should be without Spinrite in their toolbox. But and then you he do says, need a PC to hook it up to. Yep. And he says, now, if we could just get a Mac bootable native version to enable the use of Spinrite for regular maintenance, my world would approach nirvana. <laughs> so he says, best regards, Philip Shriver. So for what it's worth, or I'm sorry, Shiver, Philip Shiver, um, uh, noted. Yes, so there's <laughs> nothing we could do. Not a, not at the moment. You know, there's got to be an
0: analog because, of course, that's what things like VMware and Parallels do: is they map those int13 calls and other BIOS calls to EFI.
1: I'm sure there is, and the fact is, with Spinrite Six, I I'm, I removed a lot of Spinrite's BIOS dependence, oh, but not but not all of it. Yeah. So. I and, and you know, it is in assembler, so I, 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 at some point, probably six point something or seven, I, I will make that <laughs> jump, and it be, it'd be really fun to be able to make a bootable ISO that just you know from which you burn a CD and it just boots on a Mac. Well, and you do be, make
0: one for PCs. That's what yes. the PC does. But uh, we should make cross-platform. It should say, oh, it's EFI, I'll do it this way. Oh, it's BIOS, I'll do it this way. Yeah, you can something. do that, Steve. I can do it, Leo. All right, here I'm gonna, here's what we're gonna do. Anybody who has an easy way to map an N13 call to EFI, <laughs> you know, what do we do for EFI? Send me an email. I'll make sure Steve sees it. You, uh, don't, have you, to, may, you don't have to field that. these. No, no, no. You don't have to field these. But there's got to be somebody who's sitting there saying, well, is it just the N13 and call or the other calls you need?
1: It's uh, N13 screen and keyboard. So, it, oh, so, yeah, it, the so it's keyboard, the yeah. screen and keyboard.
0: Keyboard, screen, and the drive. I'm sure the screen and keyboard is pretty straightforward. I mean, they have yeah. a pretty good toolkit on the Mac side. Uh, and and uh, I used to write assembly language code for the Mac using the toolkit, so it's not undoable.
1: Yeah, maybe even a little translation layer, you know, just it could stick be. in some sort of a drive or something. Anyway. You would make a lot of Mac users very happy, Steve. It'll happen. Really? Wait oh, yeah. It's, well, really? But, we, but no one knows when. <laughs> Maybe your grandson that does it.
0: (laughs) Okay. It's that kind of open-ended. We want to mention the folks at uh, Astaro because, of course, they are our great sponsors on this podcast. Without Astaro, there would be, well, we probably still do security now, but uh, it sure makes it a lot easier to have sponsors. Astaro are the great folks that make the Astaro security gateway, and I talk about this all the time. In fact, you know, when they first came to us, I, I didn't really know them from Adam. I knew about UTMs. I kind of was aware of security gateways. I, I had heard of Astaro. I knew they were open source based, and I liked it for that reason. But boy, I have learned a lot. In fact, I got an Astaro 120. I've been using it. This is a box. This is amazing. About the size of a router, made out of, you know, heavy steel, but it's, you know, it looks like it. It's lightened up in front. It's kind of got the same kind of router thing however boy when your data goes through there it is being sanitized for your protection you get a complete set of security technologies the best of breed in both open source and commercial uh, anti-spam anti-phishing dual virus protection for email you get transparent encryption open pgp and smime i mean this 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 box is amazing it doesn't slow anything down at all by the way all this stuff happens like that because it's all happening locally very fast processor in there. You get web filtering, like content filtering, antivirus for the web. That's three antiviruses two for email, one for the web. Always up to date, too, thanks to Astaro Up to Date, which is just constantly keeping you up to date automatically. Again, you get anti spy where You can control things, uh, not only what websites your users are going to, but you can control instant messaging. You can control peer to peer. Very important in an office to keep people from sharing BitTorrent movies over the corporate network, I think. Uh, network protection, too. Of course, you get your firewall, your intrusion protection. They've got VPN, by the way, via SSL, too, which is makes it so easy for your users. You get IP, IPsec L2TP over IPsec PPTP tunneling with SSL. I mean, that, I mean, look at every possible way. You don't have to take my word for it. Try it in your business. Just call a star or you can get a free demo unit in your office. Put it online now. 877-427-8276. Everybody will be thrilled to say, where'd the spam go? Wow. Boy, this is so much easier and faster. 877-427-8276, or 877, the number for Astaro. That's probably easier, isn't it? 877 4 uh And if you're a non-commercial user, astaro.com slash security now. Astaro is A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. We thank him so much for such a great product and their support of security now. Shall
1: we get right to the questions? We should. I I did want to ask our listeners if anyone had intended to go check out my Kindle review over on Amazon, but forgot last week. Uh, I wanted to remind people that it's snip URL, S-N-I-P-U-R-L slash S-K-R stands for Steve's Kindle review. Um, I would love if people, if we could use the, the, the clout of the size of our listenership to help me boost this review up in popularity so that people can actually see it. It's many pages down, and there there the, the ones that were there first are the ones that typically get seen, so there's really no way for an unseen review ever to get itself voted higher unless something like this happens. And you're so,
0: very, yours is very thoughtful, and you took the time to review it after you had... Used it for a week. Unlike many of these reviewers, some of whom have never used it at all.
1: Well, the, well, the, the reason I wrote this thing was that there were more people giving it bad reviews and one star than positives, and none of the people with one star own it. it I mean, it's like not like it was like political. Yeah, it was like, well, I just know I hate this because it doesn't do, uh, you know, HD DVD, and it's like, yes, that's not what it is. It's an ebook reader. You know, so I mean, there were just it—it it, it just drove me nuts that there—that something which I think is going to change the industry is just getting panned by people who are posting reviews when they don't own it. I mean, so it's not a review. So anyway, I wanted to ask our listeners if they would go to snip s n i p u r l slash s k r. Um, and how well, did you I get will, that special s k r? Um, the snipurl.com dot site oh I, I i was i wasn't saying sn- dot .com snipurl.com/skr um it allows you it it'll it'll assign you a random token or you can give it one and if it hasn't already been used by someone then it'll assign one that you provide so it just it's very handy because it allows you to I didn't you know to, you
0: could give it your own i thought you had to just take the random one it assigned you
1: that's really great isn't that neat that's yeah it's really nice so again, it's snipurl.com. I think I've been, I forgot to be saying .com. snipurl.com/skr. And if you, would, I don't know if, if, if our, it's me, Steve, but
0: I have tried now, and I, there is no button I can click to vote for you. Yeah, I see the text that says, "If you found this commentary helpful, click the button below to help its ranking." Could
1: you have clicked already? Because I think if you click it once, it won't allow you to do it again.
0: Oh, well, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think maybe so. I did. I mean, maybe I read your review and I was unconscious and clicked it. Let me try it, <laughs> Let me try it on Internet Explorer on the Mac. No, I don't see. You know, it says, was this review helpful to you? And there's no button. There's something. Wow. Wrong. I'll come. I'll come back. There's something wrong with Amazon right now. Maybe it's just me. So um, but, you know, I, I I'm getting my Kindle any day now and I will uh, I will add my thoughts to it. But I, I like you. I want to use it for a while.
1: Yes, and we're yes, both yes. serious
0: ebook readers, so we, you know, we know what to expect. We've used this screen before on the Sony.
1: Yes, and and Leo, the thing you said to me, the reason that the motivation you had to buy it, and it, it was either you said it to me, or maybe I listened to it on Twit or on one of your other podcasts. But you said it's the connectivity. You subscribe to a whole right. bunch of newspapers. You've got them lying all over the place, and the idea of. The connectivity and i gotta tell you that it is really comforting it's something about the fact that it is just it's connected into the world and i've subscribed to a, a magazine and two newspapers i'm oh, no, sorry a, mag- a newspaper and two magazines and it's it's really cool that they're just there in the morning <laughs> yeah
0: that's what i'm very interested in, in trying out and i and i'm going to cancel my Chronicle and and Wall Street Journal and I mean I have so many I wish the New Yorker came out on this man
1: well and I, I read the economist every week uh is the economist is, you know, on it no not yet but uh, but but I have the same wish you did I mean yeah. we, if the economist is on it bang well, I'm canceling my paper yep. subscription instantly in, in a heartbeat yep. and I am going to get
0: the nation on it but I wish you know and maybe the maybe these magazines are sitting back and watching to see but uh I would love to see the New Yorker and the economist yep And then I wouldn't feel so guilty about all that paper I waste every week. (laughs) Because sometimes I don't get to read it, like most of the time. All right. I am going to read the questions. Now's the time. Listener feedback number 30, starting with Perry Harris of Bluffton, Indiana. He needs to be more careful when he sits down. Does he have one of those exercise balls he sits on (laughs) too? He says, we've used RSA secure ID key fobs and credit card fobs for a while now. We've learned that both need to be treated with care. The key fobs could stop uh, working if you bang them around with keys on your key ring. The wallet card should never be put in your wallet. Uh Uh-oh. That's where mine is. If you place your wallet in your back pocket, the act of sitting on the wallet causes enough pressure to curve it and the cards within, and that breaks the uh, card by cracking the LCD. Actually, it's an e-ink screen. I don't know if Verisign's card have the same problem or not. Oh, his his or LCD.
1: Exactly. That's why I brought this up, is RSA's cards... Are you have a glass LCD screen oh, and they're and thick? To, yes, and I wanted to make sure that people knew that VeriSign's cards are different. And mine's in my wallet, and I plop my butt down on <laughs> hard chairs without a second thought. I mean, it is amazing that this Verisign card is as flexible as it is. It is, compl- I mean, it is un there. There's nothing about it that is stiff or unlike a regular credit card. And I've had mine in my wallet. I, I take it out and show it to people every so often. And uh, uh, it just, it is really robust. So I wanted Perry to know that the VeriSign cards are, in fact, different from the RSA cards in that you really can carry it in your wallet with confidence.
0: I w- you know, it's not good to sit on your wallet, though. You can get sciatica. Okay. Well, <laughs> keep your wallet in your hip pocket. A good idea. <laughs> Unless you have a really thin wallet. But see... I have a thick wallet. I have lots <laughs> of crap in it. All right, so good. That's a good. That's good to know. There's a difference between the two. It cards. It really is. Yeah. Yes,
1: and it really is flexible. That VeriSign card is really built to last, and they have a three-year warranty on it. So if you oh, well, if you, you know. did do
0: something, they they'd replace it for I you. I love mine. I I don't use the fob anymore. I use because the card's with me always. Yep,
1: exactly. That's the whole point. I can keep it my wallet. We call it the football, Leo, by the way. That is the official football. name now. I'm, right. you, in fact, in these questions, you'll you'll see people referring to it as the football, which is, I guess, the name we came up with, but I, I think it's I perfect. I like it. Yeah. Yay. Jeff
0: Parsons of Issaquah, Washington had a PayPal double-click observation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Very big deal. Couldn't PayPal be even sneakier by linking their Apply Now button straight to the target PayPal page instead of having an image file like a... GIF on that target page, it's hosted by double click. Well, see, that's not how it's well anyway. The URL to that image file could be similarly encoded with a PayPal user specific ID, which double click could record and then simply return the expected image. Assuming browsers transmit cookie data for image get requests just as they do for user initiated GET requests, it seems there are many ways the privacy of even the most vigilant user would be at risk.
1: Yeah, there was a couple things here. First of all, Jeff Jeff has described the common practice of putting Double click sourced ads or images on a destination page, which then causes your browser to go fetch that image. And we know that unless explicitly disabled, the so-called third-party requests, that is requests out to a third-party server, are cookie-based requests. Uh, It also turns out that the vast majority of people are um, are allowing their browsers to do this. I um, I have some technology on the GRC site, which has been in place now for quite a while, I think at least a year, which is generating statistics on the number of people who are browsing um, with third-party cookies enabled, and it's something like 89% of all the people who come to GRC whom you would expect to be a little more security-conscious and privacy-conscious than your typical Internet user, they've got third-party cookies enabled. So, so it is the case that that what what Jeff is describing is the typical way that this is being done. However, the only reason I can see that that PayPal would be explicitly linking th- to DoubleClick, as we described in this um, uh, in our in our discussion, um, what three weeks ago, is that. That they want to avoid users who disable third-party cookies by making it a first-party request, which is, as we described, the whole point of this. Yeah, yeah. And but I guess
0: uh, you could do other sneaky things because we talked about how you could t- cut the uh, URL up and you know hand-write the URL and avoid that redirect. But nobody's going to do that. I don't even.
1: Yes, do that. And, and I think I think I think Jeff's point was that you could also put some data in the image URL like that the user specific id stuff could be in the image url so it's not just a generic ad fetch it's an ad fetch with additional information which is which is absolutely true there's a there's a little bit of a worrisome next generation feature that's not well known yet it's in the next html spec at least it's in 5.0 i'm not sure if it's in any of the 4.x specs but it's an attribute in a in a link tag, in, in, in a standard href tag called ping. And believe it or not, Leo, it is specifically for acknowledging to third parties when you, when you the user, have clicked on an object on an HTML page. Huh. It, it literally sends a ping fetch off to another third-party site just saying, oh, just let, to, let, to let you know this link was clicked. It's like, oh, my goodness. Well, so much for privacy.
0: <laughs> you know, it's they've, they've, they've just done everything they can to make it easier for them to invade our privacy. Yep. Corby in Reno, Nevada, isn't so sure that twice is better than once. I had this question, too, actually. I'm glad Corby asked.
1: Well, Corby. Uh, well, yeah. Go ahead. Keep reading. I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> in episode 120, you answered her question regarding double encryption. You were asked. If encrypting a file twice would provide twice the protection, I don't think your answer was entirely correct. I have no proof, but I'm willing to bet if you encrypt a file with key A, and then again with key B, the resulting file would be no more secure than a single encryption, I would guess that a brute force attack would find a third key, oh, well, that's interesting, that would decrypt the message. If two very weak keys were used to encrypt the original message, I would guess that a brute force attack would reveal a weak third key that would decrypt the cipher text. Uh, and in the same vein, Matt Ludlam of Weybridge, or Weybridge London, uh, England, says, if we take some clear text and encrypt it with key X and then key Y, one way of decrypting that is is to reverse the process. But, but isn't it possible that key Z would work alone, for, or key Z in his case? For example, XOR functions... Actually, that's right. For simple XOR functions, this logic works, but I've never looked into how proper encryption algorithms work. And also, Carlos, well, you got a lot of feedback. (laughs) Carlos Gonzalez in San Jose, Costa Rica, all over the world, I might add, uh, says, in listener 120, listener feedback 29, you answered a question from a listener regarding the use of double encryption in order to protect protect from a brute force attack. You and Leo endorsed the idea, saying it would make it more difficult to brute force decrypt the text since you'd have to figure out both keys. And you wouldn't know if you got the first key since you get, you know, random stuff back. Seems to me if you're using symmetric encryption to double encrypt a text, first with key A, then with key B, the resulting text would be decryptable by using a new key. Let's call it C, which would be equal to A, X, or B. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of the same thing that Corby was suspecting without the mathematics behind it. So double encrypting a text doesn't make it any harder to decrypt using brute force methods. It just creates a new unique key which will decrypt the text entirely. So you're right back is where you were. Is that is that true?
1: No. Oh. Um, uh, it turns out, well, but so many people asked the question. I, first of all, I was, I was delighted that people were They're using their thinking, thinking caps, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that was obviously a, a, it was a question and answer that, that interested a lot of people because I, I just chose three out of a great many more people who suggested the, the, this same sort of idea. Um, what, what we know about symmetric encryption is that it is, it is fundamentally different than, for example, the encryption we talked about early on in the Security Now! series, when we were talking about the weak encryption that was provided by by WEP, WEP, and and actually is the same encryption that is that is used by WPA, the good Wi-Fi encryption, except that the 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 algorithm has been fixed so that it's not broken. But you, but our listeners may remember that back then, the way that encryption worked was that there is a a cipher known as RC4, which is a pseudo random um, data generator. So you g- you give it a key and you, you get it started, and this thing produces a a series of pseudo random bytes, which are so good when you when you use it correctly. That it takes, it's estimated, as I remember, it's about a billion bytes, that is a gigabyte of data, even to be able to determine that it's not completely random. So it's really, really random. And we know that if you, if you mix random data with non-random data, the result is random data. That is, you know, if, if you if you XOR, which is the operation that, that a couple of these guys talked about, it, it's basically it it randomly inverts bits in your data, and what that res, that results in something just as random as the original random data, even though it's sort of it. Well, it does have the the plain text encoded in it, such that naturally, if you re-invert the same bits you'll get your data back well that is a form of symmetric encryption but it's not but that's a symmetric stream cipher or symmetric stream encryption where you mix using xor you you mix your data with something pseudo random and then when you when you mix it again that you get your data back block encryption that is a block cipher which is for example what Reindahl is using and I don't remember now whether the the person who posed the question spe- specified which type of cipher he was using. I assumed he was using a block cipher. Block ciphers work completely differently. And the, the math of them, which we can explain sort of at a high level, shows why this notion of double encrypting really does work. Remember, as we talked about symmetric block ciphers, you, you have, a, you have a, a, a chunk of data that is relatively wide in terms of its, its bit size. In the, case, in, the, in the case of Reindahl, it's 128 bits. And so you put 128 bits in, and what comes out is a different 128 bits. And what the cipher guarantees is that for every single possible 128 bit combination you're gonna get a different 128 bit combination out so and there's a one-to-one relationship that is there there you can't get something out twice um, when for, well you, you you there there there's there are no missing patterns that is for all 128 possible combinations in you're gonna get a different... One hundred and twenty eight bits out for every possible combination in mm-hmm. so and the key on the cipher that is the key that you you give the cipher determines which one of that many keyed mappings there are, okay, but if we stand back a minute, look at the number of possible mappings um, if we had say all zeros and we put that in that's going to map to one to one pattern of 128 bits then we have the um um i'm sorry i sort of started off wrong there the the idea is if we 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 know that we have 2 to the 128 possible patterns that we can put in the the, the question is, how many mappings are there? Well, the number of mappings is 2 to the 128th factorial. Because for any pattern in, the output might be any one of the other possible 2 to the 128th bit patterns. Then for the next pattern in, the output might be any one of those except the first one. So we have 2 to the 128th times 2 to the 128th minus 1 times 2 to the 128th minus 2. In other words, it's 2 to the power of 128 factorial possible mappings, which is a an astronomically large <laughs> number. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's just phenomenally large, how many possible mappings there are. But, when, but consider the key. The key is, for example, in a in a the the maximum key that Reindahl uses it, it can use either 128 bit 192 or 256 bit key well we know that that of course has 2 to the 256 different combinations well that number is far smaller in fact you know 2 to the 128 is just 2 to the 128 times 2 to the 128 so essentially it's like it's like um the, there, are, there are two to the 126th factorial um, um, mappings missing. That is, so, so my point is that the 256-bit the key can only access a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the possible mappings between the input and the output of the cipher. So, so the fact is, what the cipher is doing is, th- driven by the key, it's, th- the key is able to select a minuscule number of possible mappings, meaning that there is just a vanishingly small chance that, that double encrypting with different keys... Would be equivalent to a single encryption with a third key. I'm gonna take your I mean, word for it because I couldn't follow that at all. <laughs> it's like it's like the, the chance would be one over two to the hundred and twenty-six factorial. I mean, it just it's just ridiculously small. So double encrypting works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and aren't you sorry you asked
0: corby and matt and carlos uh joe bialik in the syracuse new york is looking for a new image a long time back there was a topic you and leo mentioned briefly i'm really interested in you and leo were discussing how you make image snapshots of your systems when you first build them then routinely make further backup images as you go you mentioned specific software that you preferred and for the life of me I can't remember which episode it was, and I can't find it, and don't worry, we know what it is. I've used backup systems like MacStore's OneTouch, but I don't like having all the other software running on my system. You know, the .NET, HD Retrospect, etc. I'd love something that could either be parsed to DVDs, or better yet, an external USB hard drive that doesn't require other programs running in the background all the time. All that being said, what are your top three recommendations regarding this type of software? Would Windows Home Server work?
1: Well, the program we referred to, Joel, is still my absolute favorite, and that's called Drive Snapshot. Um, that's PC-based, so it's it's Windows only. Um, Drive Snapshot is, is just a program which you run whenever you want to make a snapshot, so it's not running all the time. It's not going to be able to unwind changes or move back in time any of that you need to tell it when you want to have it make a snapshot what i like about it is that it does a very good job of compressing the file system you are able to tell it if you want to limit the size of the, of the individual image files, so, for example, you could tell it to make them no bigger than, than 4.7 gigabytes, in which case, if your image was larger than that, it would split it into multiple files for burning to DVD. The, another cool thing is you can mount those snapshots. So if, if, if you had a snapshot from another system or an earlier snapshot and you deleted some files, you can literally double-click the snapshot file, open it using Drive Snapshot, and browse it just like you would any uh, folder hierarchy and file hierarchy in Windows Explorer. And, and then finally, you run this thing. If, you're, if you did have your system die, you can run it from uh, a DOS prompt that is the lowest-level available OS, and it will reconstitute an entire partition from the snapshot. So I, I really like the program. I use it all the time when I'm configuring laptops 000, um, and, and wanting to sort of be able 7, to, to step back if 000, I make a uh, I Point really recommend five. it.
0: I was just doing some math. I'm sorry the calculator started talking.
1: <laughs> I, <was trying laughs> I didn't hear it.
0: <laughs> I know you didn't hear it. You know, that's drivesnapshot.de if you want to know more about uh, that. And I, I recommend it, too. I use it, too. Um, the problem with that as a backup solution is it's you have to image everything. And, you know, a lot of times we think of backups as backing up everything. And I think that's kind of because business does it that way. And, uh, and so we get it in our heads. And business does it that way because they need to restore fast. Every minute that you're down is lost revenue. So bus- in business, where you have drones that are paid to do this kind of thing, it's okay to spend more time at the front end so you spend less time at the back end. I think it's the opposite for end users. The less time you spend backing up, the more likely you are to do it. And should disaster happen, it doesn't matter if it takes longer to get back up as long as you can get back up. So I don't recommend backing up Windows and all the applications. So I I do like you do, Steve. I make an image of my first install because I don't want to go through the Windows install ever again. Right. Including the activation. And I just restore
1: that. The, oh, and, and and the 89 security patches we're right. up to now for XP. Right.
0: The problem is that that is out of date almost immediately because there's another security patch next week, and, and so uh, it's hard to keep an image file up to date. So what I do is I make that so I can do a quick install, and then I back up my data just by copying it to the hard drive. And actually, I yep. use I use a, a, um, a second copy, which does it automatically. Does a synchronize on the Mac. I use ChronoSync. These are background copiers. They do run in the background. They're very small, and basically... Every hour or so, they say, "Hey, is there any change between the main drive and the backup drive? If there is, copy that stuff over too." So you always kind of have a backup. And that—that that, to me, imaging is too hard. You're not going to do that. You do that once a week. So what happens if it goes down halfway through the week? You've lost stuff. Imaging is really more for that first build of the operating system. And remember, it's going to get out of date pretty quickly. Uh, so if you want to keep applications up to date, if you want to keep the operating system up to date, every few maybe six months, you might want to strip it down reinstall add the updates and make a new image that's the problem with this is you have to do this pretty you have to be pretty careful about it and do it yeah i i
1: I should i should mention too along the lines of a file-by-file backup i have another program that i that i love that is called file back pc um, if you just Google file back PC, you will find it. And it's one I've used for years. I like it. And in fact, I've got it re- monitoring my assembly language subdirectory. And yeah, so you, you don't want to lose one iota of that programming. Exactly. and And what I love about it, too, is you're able to tell it how many copies of each file you want to maintain, which files Perfect. you want to maintain using file extension filters. And, for example what what limit a number of copies within a certain length of time it's got very powerful backup uh, de- uh description um options so for example i'm able to say i want i want to keep 20 you know like 20 up to 20 previous um, instances of my assembly language files no closer together than That's an great. hour apart, That's no great. more than 10 a day kind of thing. And uh, and it just th- that way I know that my work is always going to be safe.
0: I have to get that. That's from maxoutput.com, and it's 55 bucks. It really is good, Leo. I've used it for years, and I, I just really like it. Yeah, I use a second copy, which is about 30 or $40. Bucks. Uh, it's not as flexible, though. This looks much more, this is a more serious product.
1: It's a serious tool, and it also understands about file shares. It's able to to ah. to to link and to log on to remote ah, drives uh, o- over Windows networking with no problem.
0: Yeah, see, that's what I do. I map a network-attached storage drive to my Windows machine and just automatically back up to that. So it's not even the right. same machine. Right. Um, but, yeah, this is where an a- external USB drive is so useful. But as, as you get more serious, network-attached storage really is the best way to back up. And then don't forget an off-site backup. Because if you, you know, look what happened to Francis Ford Coppola. They they stole they stole his computer and his backup drive. So yep. he had nothing. So I use Carbonite to back up online. That's a sponsor of the radio show, but I use that. And that's now I have like, boy, I have like 18 different ways I can. <laughs> but you got to do that. You're it's safe. The, that's the way you have peace of mind. Yep. James Wilcox of Rapid City, South Dakota wants to keep his router. I don't want to lose my router. I don't want to. Thanks for such a terrific podcast. Thank you, James, for listening. I have a football on my keychain that I love showing off to friends and family as I explain multi-factor authentication and watch their eyes glaze over. Really great for the holidays. Anyway, I was doing a little reading on IPv6, and I had a question. This guy must be great at parties. According to MS's help file in XP, part of the problem with IP version 4 is it didn't anticipate such a large demand for IP addresses. NAT routers, of course, get around that issue. But when IPv6 comes around with its 3.48 times 10 to the 38th addresses, won't routers be obsolete? If that's true, then I guess our handy routers at firewalls will go away, won't they? Maybe that's a good plug for Astaro. First of all, where is, you know, is IPv6 imminent and what happens if it comes out?
1: I don't know if it's it's, I mean, I have said that it's never going to happen. And then I get a bunch of hate mail from people saying, oh, it's already happening. Don't you know what's going on? You're clueless and and things like that. Um, The the problem is that that the real incentive for it was largely this IP space depletion and, and consumption, which has not happened because of NAT routers, exactly as James Wilcox here suggests. My sense is that routers are so good for security that that clearly, if we originally had 128-bit IP addresses, which is what IPv6 gives us, had, had we had 128-bit IP addresses, routers may have never happened in the first place. But now that they have and they do such a good job of of protecting us on the net, I'll be surprised if even when we do get 128 bit IP addresses if that ever happens i'd be surprised if they go away because they've happened and they're inexpensive and it's just sort of a nice place for you to plug everything in i mean if you didn't have a router then we'd go back to having a hub or a switch which is which is not as smart but those don't cost that much less now than routers do right so i think i think this is something i don't think james needs to worry about losing his router i think he'll always be able to have a router
0: yeah and i think many routers handle ipv6 so it's not like your router is uh i mean you'll still have a router this router may be obsolete my router can do ipv6 i think
1: yes and of course that was a big deal in vista and i think xp has a a, a v6 stack also so again it's it's sort of happening but it requires that our isps you know, basically swap out a lot of the hardware that they've been using. A lot of
0: infrastructure, yeah.
1: Yep, a lot of infrastructure has to be upgraded, and there's not a great deal of pressure
0: to do it. I think it'll happen. I think it is happening. I think it's gradual. The question is how long before IPv4 is obsoleted, and that may take forever. Who knows how long
1: that that'll happened. never happen because IPV4 is already accommodated in a little corner of IPV6. So you could keep using IPV4, IPv4 See, and go. the IPV6 transport will, tra- will, will translate back and forth. So See, like, that's yeah. the real question
0: is when are they going to phase out V4 and they're not. Right. Right. Jim Bassett in uh, Pleasant Hill, California also uses the Patelco Credit Union. We were talking about that on listener feedback. Twenty nine. He said he wanted to follow up on the uh, First question regarding multi-factor authentication at Patelco. The questioner explained that Patelco was using reverse DNS to authenticate logons. You discussed the trouble with relying too heavily on that. Uh, Jim wants to point out Patelco allows you the option to not keep a trusted provider on file, thus requiring you to receive a new password via email or SMS for each login. (laughs) Wow. Would this be... (laughs) Would this, I can you know, well, all right. Would this be a more acceptable use of this type of multi-factor authentication? I too am a Patelco member and will be implementing this as well, and would like your feedback. I regularly access my account from both home and work. I for sure would not have my work ISP as a trusted provider, rightly so. I think, and I'm thinking of doing the same for my home provider, Comcast, despite the minor inconvenience of needing to get a new password via email each time I access
1: my account. It's interesting. So, so essentially, what's happening is we we apparently had a system where a username and password could once be used from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Then they added this notion of wanting to. Well, I guess actually, it's not even a notion. It's a government regulation is is coming downstream saying you must have multi-factor authentication. So they're saying, okay, we're going to use reverse DNS for multi-factor authentication. we recognize, though, that it's not a safe practice. That is, it's not as strong a, another factor as necessary. But what Jim is saying is that in, in response to that, you can tell Patelco to never trust anyone, and that will force them to send you a password via email or SMS every single time, which, yes, I think is much more secure. So, that you know, that's what I would do. As you said, Leo, it's certainly a bit of a hassle, but unless you're logging on to your credit union site all the time, I would think it's probably worth the security. Via SMS isn't too bad of a
0: problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just comes to, I've noticed when I use this, Bank of America will do this as it's a, a secondary form of authentication. Um, it's instant. So you press yep. the button, bzz, there's your phone, there's the number. I think that's probably a good way to do it. In fact, I would like to do it that way. Yep. Aaron Mashburn, writing from the Republic of Panama, has an SSL question. The recent PPP episodes, Perfect Paper Passwords, sparked my interest in crypto. So I went back and re-downloaded episodes 31 through 37 as a refresher course. Good idea, by the way. That's a good thing to keep in mind. We've covered these subjects, uh, you know, kind of the primers on these subjects in past episodes. So if you go back, you can look at those. He said, as he listened to episode 37, a question popped into my mind. I understand... An SSL certifica- certificate 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 verifies the identity of my server, but is the cert used at all in the encryption process for the SSL?
1: Well, it was a neat question, and in fact, we've had a number of questions like this, um, such that I've made a note in our upcoming show plan to specifically talk about SSL. We've we've talked about the need for it, we've talked about the certificate side, but we've never actually looked at the protocol itself and as is so often the case, it's extremely understandable. So I want to give it an entire episode in the future. In the meantime, I wanted to respond to Aaron's question and say that that yes, um, there there are aspects of the certificate which are used. For the HTTPS connection, specifically what the remote server does is it provides the client with, its, with its, its certificate, which has been signed by the certificate authority, which, as we know, allows the client to verify the signature. It also provides its, its, the public key of its public-private key pair. It provides the public key so that the client can then choose a random number, uses a pseudo random number to obtain a um, a symmetric key which they will use for bulk encryption during their conversation. You cannot use the the public key for bulk encryption because it's much too time consuming to do that. So you you use the public key just to encrypt. The symmetric key. So, so the remote server provides the client with its public key. The client encrypts the randomly chosen symmetric key using the server's public key and sends it back. And the beauty of public key crypto, which is what um, uh, Aaron's relearned in episodes thirty-one through thirty-seven of Security Now, is that. That someone could see that, could sniff the wire, and see that going by. They could literally see the publicly encrypted um, symmetric key chosen by the client and be absolutely unable to decrypt it. Only the server that has the matching secret key in this public and, and private key pair is able to decrypt that which was encrypted with its public key in order to obtain the symmetric key. Which they then use for communicating oh, so clever. that's how that works, and we're going to do a, an episode that really that, that, that covers this because there's a lot more features and options in it and you know we're just depending upon we're, we're depending upon SSL for for so much Oh yeah these days Oh yeah, all the time. Jack's a little worried about
0: being spied on in Australia. he says, is it possible to strip the security of HTTPS that SSL we were just talking about? and decode the encryption so that it could be read by the internet service provider or other government agencies in Australia?
1: And the answer is a resounding no. It is. There are, you have to be careful that, for example, your ISP has not given your browser a, a certificate authority and is and, and, a, and is able to proxy your HTTPS connections. But, but you would um, know that because a
0: certificate would say, your ISP's name and not the site's name.
1: Yes, it would show that the ISP had signed that site certificate, which it w- it would be creating on the fly, rather than, for example, Verisign having signed it. So you absolutely, if you are at a site and you verify the chain of 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 signing authority for the certificate, and you see that it goes back to one of the the very common root certificate providers, then there is no way given that that anybody sniffing the wire is able to as jack said strip off the security i mean that's the whole point of ssl and it is a it is a well known public standard with with you know no ways around it clarify for me though if I, okay
0: so i'm at work and i know that my internet uh, is you know going through a server at work and that they're probably doing this certificate shuffle here so I'm on uh, Amazon.com. I've got a certificate. If I get info or look at the security on the page, will it still say the certificate? Will it say Amazon.com or will it say
1: my office? It would. It would say Amazon.com. It would still say Amazon.com, and then it would show that it was signed by your company. So and and look so, it's
0: signing is what you want to look at.
1: Yes, you want to see who it is that signed the the, the certificate. Now you're and, screwed if you work for VeriSign. <laughs> that's a very good point I never it's going to be verisign that. and you yeah. can't tell if it's the right you know if it's Yes, that's a very good point. They, they could certainly be, and we, we assume that they're not, we, we, we don't know they're not, but I mean, I've never thought of that, about that before, but you're right. Since they're the signing authority, they could be signing certificates that they're making on the fly, yeah. and everyone's browser would accept them. That's, that's a very <laughs> that's interesting funny. hack, Leo. That's <laughs> now, uh, how do,
0: it's different in each browser to get that information. Um, but in most browsers, you could right-click on the page and say, uh, I, what, view certificate? Or
1: You you look at the page properties and then view certificate, and then you, you'll you see the first certificate, and then you can look at details, and it'll sort of show you normally a hierarchy of, of signatures going back to some root. And so it's the root that, that has signed all the certificates in the chain of, of trust. And if okay. that goes back to... Someone like Verisign or uh, eTrust or one of these um, or, or 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 Thought, for example, then those are you know mainstream certificate signing authorities, and, and you know that the site you're going to had its certificate signed by them. Got it. Got it. Uh, Zach Cooley in Gilbert,
0: Arizona, wants the world to stop spinning. I was wondering how the new solid state hard drives, we just got one at uh, the lab, by the way, 64 gigs for like 2,500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering how the new solid state hard drives are going to change how we as consumers back up our data. Do the bits in a solid state hard drive function like the bits on a spinning platter hard drive and that they can become corrupted? Hell yeah. Well, I still need spin right to use on my solid-state drive over time? Will we need to defrag them? Will we need to back up the data on solid-state hard drives as much as we do now? I've got questions. Is there a battery inside like motherboard batteries that keeps the data in there that can
1: die and cause data loss? What, Steve? Tell me what. Well, there's essentially no relationship between solid-state hard drives and physical hard drives. Phys- you know, well, they store bits. Magnet. Well, okay, yeah, exactly. But, but no, in terms of the technology, they are absolutely... Different. So, for example, um, there's no need to defrag them. Oh, interesting! Th- really? Yes, there is no there, There's no physical, you know, seeking
0: going on. Oh, so it doesn't that, matter. They just that, it's it's a it's a read cycle from any address
1: is the same. Exactly. Oh, interesting. Um, there's no battery inside. What they use is a is a is an electrostatic technology where. Essentially, it, it's possible to strand electrons on a little, a little tiny bit of metal that are that, that's insulated, and the electrostatic influence of the electrons is sensed on the other side of the insulator. And that's what determines if it's a one or a zero. So basically, you sort of you squirt the electrons, you force them through the insulator and they get stranded there or you suck them out and then they're no longer there. So it's a very different technology, completely different from a hard drive. The problem is that that process of squirting electrons through the insulator known as tunneling, it actually creates some physical damage and some wear over time, so there is a problem with um, with this technology in terms of the number of times you can write to it. You can read to it easily, just by saying, you know, just just by querying whether or not this this little transistor is on or off. But the process of writing is is just a little tiny bit destructive to the system. Hmm. The reason writing is so slow is that it actually requires a higher voltage in order to inject the electrons, and that requires something called a charge pump to charge itself up in order to cause this injection to occur, and that's why writing to these non-volatile rams is much slower than, than reading from them. But the other thing that happens is if you... If you write to them over and over and over, they die. So they don't die fast. There's like on the order of 10 to the 5 write cycles, so like like 100,000 write cycles, but not infinite. Hard drives are infinite. That is, it doesn't hurt them in any way to change the data on them. It actually hurts non-volatile memory to change its data. So in order to... In order to mitigate the damage, non-volatile RAM has a technology that spreads the actual writing around the surface of the RAM so that even if you are reading and writing the same area, that is the same address of the RAM over and over and over, it's actually occurring in a distributed fashion across different physical areas of the RAM. They do that in order to spread out... The the damage caused by writing to it. So you you really don't want to defrag because that's needlessly writing to a a technology which has a limited number of write cycles. You certainly don't want to run spin write on it because spin write just writes like crazy. In or I mean that's good for hard drives. It's bad for non volatile solid state hard drives. So don't run spin write on it.
0: Would it? You don't want
1: to run spin Would it work? I mean, it's an IDE interface, isn't it? It does. It does work. Um, Mark Thompson, my buddy at Analog X, uh, years ago, he was curious about whether um, non-volatile RAM really was hurt by writing. So he, he used a PC. He used a, um, a PCMCIa um, EEPROM, a non-volatile memory, and he set it up as the Windows swap drive. Windows, oh, oh boy, <laughs> killed it in one hour. Whoa. Just okay. killed it dead. There you it go. just was game over. He's got money to
0: burn. That kid. Yeah, he's crazy. It's so, it, but that's interesting because Ready Boost, this Ready Boost and Ready Drive technology fra, that Microsoft Vista supports, is solid state, but it's not writing to it a lot. It's it writes to it once and then it uses it as a cache. As exactly,
1: I it's very much, it, it reading is no problem, and also you'll you, you'll notice that other mature technologies they'll they will use RAM and. Only su- and only very seldomly do they flush that out to the non-volatile. So, so mature technologies understand that you cannot write to these things all right. the time. Right. You you must you, you can read from them easily, but writing is something you want to tend not to do. Okay, good. And, and as you said, Leo, it's still very expensive. Oh yeah, it's
0: not. It, we're way off from this being a commonplace. Yeah. Yep. I was surprised how expensive that was. Uh, Sean Reiser of Astoria, New York, shares the perfect PPP quandary of the week in just a moment. We'll also have our great tip of the week from Patrick in Montreal, Canada. And Brian, also from Montreal, with the horrifying showstopper question of the week. I can't wait, but, I, but I'm but i going to tease you because I'm going to mention uh, Nerds on Site before we get on to uh, our next question. Nerds on Site is one of our great sponsors. We wish you a happy holidays, by the way. All the nerds who listen, I know everybody who is a Nerds on Site provider listens to the show. They picked me up in Vancouver in their bright red nerd mobiles. I think I had a convoy of seven of them. It was so much fun. Nerds are, I like nerds. And if you're a nerd, you should go to com and find out more about Nerds on Site. Nerds on Site is a guild, a federation of IT professionals who work together. To help solve problems, you're still in business for yourself, you're just not by yourself. Nerds helps you get leads. It helps you service your clients. If there's a problem you can't solve, you can go to other nerds and get some suggestions. You can also keep your skills tuned up. They have a nerds on-site university of nerdology with 250 different competencies, ranging from systems architecture, design, software development. I mean, look, if you've been an IT guy fixing computers and you'd like to learn about programming, you can, you know, it's part of the deal. Uh, they have full on-site IT department uh, classes, desktop support classes, Soho Residential Service. They're also a, an Astaro, authorized Astaro solution provider, so you can free get your Astaro certified administrator and your Astaro certified engineer training for all nerds. Uh, they also support other UTMs, so they're really, I mean, they're just out there and great people and all over the world. If you're in IT... If you would like to build your business, if you would like the help of nerds on site, go to Iwanttobeanerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. Iwanttobeanerd.com. Great people helping customers all over the world in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, Singapore. I'm sure there's more to that list. There is all the time. Iwanttobeanerd.com. We wish them happy holidays and we're, we're so grateful to them for uh, their sponsorship all this year. All this year of uh, security now. It's really nice of, uh, of them to help us. All right, Steve, are you ready? <laughs> it's time for the perfect PPP quandary of the week. Sean Reiser of Astoria, New York says, first off, this is not a story about a flaw in the PPP system. Just a reminder of the saying, because there is no patch for human stupidity. PPP in and of itself is excellent. We just need to eliminate humans from the equation. Pebcac, baby. Uh, I've been piloting an implementation of perfect paper passwords on a corporate site to replace RSA key fobs. Oh, really neat. And encountered a problem I didn't expect. Once we expanded the pilot beyond the text into some of the business units, I noticed users tend to take advantage of the blank backside of the paper to note little things like the site URL, their username, their password. <laughs> oh boy. No matter how much education we did, even if the users were specifically told not to write this information on the cards, they were always there were always users who did it. Barring lobotomies or summary execution, I really don't know how to handle this. I'd appreciate any ideas you had. That's that a, great? that's a, I mean, but what are you going to do about that?
1: Yeah, the only thing I could think, I mean, I was thinking, well, that's interesting. I mean, so essentially by writing their username and password on the back that's of convenient. their their PPP card. It's right there. They've com- they've completely <laughs> scrapped all the security that is available. If they if they lose physical access to their card, Especially they've, if they're crossing off the PPPs as they use them. You even know what the next PPP is. Yep. And so so they've you know the the idea of something that they know in something that they have. Well, if the person if a bad guy gets a hold of it, then he knows what they know, right. and they've you know they've lost all of your multi-factor strength. The only thing I could think. Was to put. For, for First, I was thinking, okay, well, how about if you just uh, like you you printed double sided and you just put like a cross hatch on the backside, <laughs> you know, people might still write over that. So then I was thinking, okay, there's nothing that would prevent you from making double sided PPP cards. That oh, is, oh, good idea. Instead of just printing, instead of just, just printing um, one web page that contains three, print two. So that you you have cards one two three and four five six on the second page, which will print out when you print it double sided on the back side. Sure. So now the People cards will still last-
0: write it though in the little bit of space there. Yeah, you know? I know. You gotta, you gotta laminate hit. them. Laminate yep. them. Then they couldn't. They'd have to use a grease pencil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's probably a good idea, Leo. Yeah, just laminate. L- it. Yeah. Yeah. And so so they just will not take ink. Right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't know what take the pens away from them.
0: I don't know what you can do. It must be you know, it's funny. uh, I have great sympathy for IT professionals. And I know how much they hate users. (laughs) And it's hard.
1: The real world is a real problem. Yeah.
0: And you go in and I'm sure every IT professional goes in, you know, gung ho, excited about their users. They want to help them. And they slowly grind you down. <laughs> you start out with all the goodwill in the world, but slowly they grind you down. And I don't know a single IT pro who has not have a horror story or two or three or four. Are right, you ready for the great tip of the week? Yeah. This is from Patrick in Montréal. Perhaps you've already had a slew of people tell you this, but just in case no one did. And, and nobody did, by the way, Patrick. You're the one. An easy way of accessing the Flash Player Settings Manager is to right-click a Flash object on a web page, then choose Settings, which brings up the basic Settings panel on which there is an Advanced button right on the first tab there. It'll take you directly to the right Adobe Macromedia page, which contains the Flash Player Settings Manager. Also, it might be worth mentioning that settings should be adjusted by accessing the panel while browsing in Firefox as well as IE because they are browser-specific, I guess.
1: Yes, exactly. There's a different plugin for the Firefox ah. th- uh, adobe than there is for the ie and i'm i didn't verify this but i'm assuming patrick is saying that they're not sharing settings on a single machine so you need to go there both but i really liked his suggestion because it's i mean many people wrote to say hey my bank is using flash cookies i never heard of flash cookies right. before but that's what they're doing so right. so our mentioning this and talking about this to our to our listeners a couple of weeks ago brought this to the fore and, of course, people want to have control over what their machine is doing and, and you know, that the trackability. They, they may have been people who were disabling third-party cookies but never even thought or knew about Flash cookies. So I like Patrick's note because it makes it very easy. In order to check this out, I just went to MSNBC.com, and I went to CNN.com. Both of them, I mean, just assuming they would have Flash stuff, and sure enough, you know, Flash began jumping around on their page <laughs> – doing animation and I just right click to hit settings and then and then click the advanced button. And that took me to the Adobe page just as exactly as Patrick said. So I loved his, his excellent, idea. Excellent. Very, very good.
0: All right. It is time for our last question of the day from Brian W also in Montreal. He asks the horrifying showstopper question of the week. I've been a listener since episode one and I love the show. Thank you, Brian. I know you guys have covered keystroke loggers in the past. I am one of the probably millions that love using wireless keyboards, but I never considered the security risk. Yeah. I saw a Black Hat presentation on wireless, wireless key loggers. What really worried me was that the encryption, if you could call it that, on Microsoft's wireless keyboards was a one-bit shift register. Is this, like, (laughs) industry-wide? Well, I did some research uh, after Brian... Somebody brought- asked me this on the radio show, you know, and I didn't know. And I'm glad Brian asked this question. Yep. Get a load of this. It's not a
1: one-bit shift register. It's a one-byte static byte that is XORed with the data from the keyboard. So would that be pretty easy to reverse engineer? Leo, it'd be hard not to reverse engineer. <laughs> It is horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying. And this is this is
0: true not just for Microsoft, but do, do other keyboards do it this
1: way? Well, apparently Logitech has recognized that this is a problem that's uh, sooner or later going to get exposed. Right. Um, Microsoft's wireless keyboards do this. The 1000 series and the 2000 series have been examined. The 3000, the 4000 had not been, but uh, it appears to be the same for them. Logitech has a, like a secure connect. They have an encrypted feature. keyboard. Yeah. Yeah and so they're they're boasting about that but the extremely popular Microsoft keyboards during the so-called association phase the the keyboard chooses a random byte a one byte of randomness and provi- oh, yeah. provides it to the reader then the the keystrokes you type are XORed with that with that one byte which means it's unbel- Which means, as we know, there are 256 possible combinations of one byte that the one byte can have. All you have to do is, is suck in a bunch of characters, you know, wait a few minutes for someone to type 20 or 30. And then in a heartbeat, you could check every possible byte. One of them will turn what they're typing into English or clear text or whatever language they're typing in. In that case, at that point... Their keyboard is decrypted for all intents and purposes. It's deciphered. What this means, of course, is that is that in a situation where people are within sniffing distance, radio distance of a keyboard, you absolutely have to consider that it is not safe. Keyboards are using a low frequency, 27 megahertz, which is extremely easy to receive, meaning that In an apartment building, you know, neighbors could who have a wireless keyboard could have everything they're typing trivially decrypted if it's at least on these Microsoft Series 1000 and 2000 keyboards and probably other keyboards. Wow. So it's definitely a concern. Uh, good to know.
0: Yeah. And so the Logitech ones that say encrypted, do you know what technique they use? I don't,
1: and it's something definitely worth some research. We know that it's actually not very easy to to perform really good encryption against man-in-the-middle attacks. It's absolutely possible, and we've we've several times we've talked about the technologies to enable that, but you've got to have some serious Work being done on each end in order for a a conversation in the clear that can be monitored as any radio conversation can be to have that kind of a conversation secure. It's definitely possible to do it, but you got to really want to. So I'm wondering if Logitech's um, approach is way secure or just you know <laughs> less little. hard to crack. <laughs> but again, it'd be it'd be. It'd be, I don't know if you could make anything less hard to crack than what Microsoft has done, which is just choose a a single byte and XOR your data with it. It's like, why even bother? Well, in their defense, they don't say it's an encrypted, uh,
0: secure keyboard, do they? No, they don't. And so it's probably more to prevent uh, crosstalk from other keyboards in the same area.
1: Uh, It doesn't, no, it it doesn't do that. And it turns out that there there is now technology on the net that will simultaneously record and decrypt from all the keyboards within range at the same time. Because the keyboards do have a, a unique identifier that allows you to to disambiguate oh, the great. data coming in from all the different keyboards. Oh, I mean, it's just unbelievable.
0: It yeah, can log everybody in the whole office without even touching their computers.
1: Yes, just, you know, put on your tinfoil cap and connect a wire to it and send it into your keyboard receiver and you can, you know, monitor what everybody's typing. Unbelievable.
0: Well, we've come to the end of another fantastic and fascinating edition of uh, your questions. Steve's answers. We thank you, Steve. It's great stuff. Um, I want to remind everybody to go to Steve's site, grc.com. That's where you'll find 16 kilobit versions of every single episode ever of security now all 122 of them you also have transcripts which is great do you have transcripts for every episode every single one i had lane go back and she started from number one and wow, came forward that's great and uh and uh lots of great free stuff including shields up ppp the perfect paper passwords some sample implementations and so forth his great security forums lots of simple and useful utilities like wismo and of course, everybody's favorite hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, but don't use it on your flash drive. Spin right. You can use it on your spinning. Well, it's spin right. You don't Spinrite. have flash right.
1: It's nope, not doing flash right yet. Spin
0: right. Grc Steve, so much fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Do you? Uh, and I, are you going
1: to take, take Christmas off? What are we going to do here? We going to keep going? We're going to keep going. We're not going to miss a single week. You just want to catch up with Twit. Even though, hey, I'm going to pass him up this time, finally. <laughs> Even though you're, you're going to be off in Egypt for a couple of weeks, right? I will. start.
0: I'm leaving uh, Christmas Eve. I'm leaving, which is uh, just five days from now. I'm going to leave to go to Providence, spend uh, Christmas with my mom and sister and my family. And then all of us, my family, the four of us are going to go to uh, Egypt on the 27th. We'll be in Cairo. If, any, if we have any Security Now listeners in Cairo, say hello. I'll be the one on the donkey. Uh, or The Camel, I'm not sure. And then uh, we come back January 6th, so we'll get back, you know, the the network itself will get back in the swing of things kind of slowly after the after the 6th. Um, I, I probably will miss a, at least two twits or three twits, which means you'll be ahead by then,
1: <laughs> finally.
0: And then we're doing at Macworld, which is January 15th through, through 18th, we're doing... uh. Uh, a live podcast every day there at uh, in the West Conference Hall. If you come up, we'll do a security now up there. If you come up, oh, I'll think about I can that. Get you in, cool. We have friends. I like and, that. And yeah, that'll be fun. And then um, I w- I do want to remind everybody that we do have that holiday coupon still for Scotty Vest merchandise. Anything on the Scotty Vest site as you check out, use the coupon code Leo and you'll get twenty percent off the top right there. That does not include the Twit merchandise available through Think Geek. Just the Vest merchandise at Scottevest.com. 20% off. Use the coupon code uh, Leo. And that's just our little way of saying thank you for being such great listeners all year long. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank the folks who donate. Because I, I think people hear the ads. And this show especially. We've had uh, full sponsorship. We're sold out. We'll never have more than two ads. Uh, and we have been sold out all year. And I think people probably, some people think, oh, well, they don't need our money. We do. Uh, because... Uh, sponsorship frankly does not cover the costs the, sp- the uh, money from sponsorships goes to the hosts. Uh, the costs the day- to day costs are, are come from your donations things like the server, the rent, Dane's salary come from your donations because those are consistent and advertising is not. So please we uh, we do appreciate your your donations don't stop keep them up. we thank you so much for your support. Just go to twit.tv and click those links. Uh, even two dollars a month is plenty that's enough just to show you care. All right, Steve, have a great week. We'll talk again. Boy, we're going to be getting close to Christmas when we talk next. Yeah. It'll be the 20th. 1220. Thanks, Leo. All right, take care. Security now.